You're listening to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And on this Wednesday podcast, you, the Duck fan, dictates where this show goes. It's Mailbag Wednesday. You guys send in your best questions, and we try to answer and give you insight into those same questions. So without further ado, Eric, you're up first. You've got the questions. Let's get this thing going. All right, first question from at SmithGarrett91. With prominent seniors like Haley Cruz, Peyton Pritchard, Sabrina Inescu, and Justin Herbert all graduating, who do you predict are the next faces of Oregon athletics? I like this question and uh, a lot in terms of he's right. There are a lot of seniors that are going to be fin- finishing up their, fo- their football, basketball, softball careers, you name it, over the next couple of months here at Oregon. Obviously, Herbert's already concluded his football career, but um, – I went ahead and, and put down two players for each sport that I thought could be that face of the program. Uh, Matt, you go ahead and jump in if you disagree or if you have any um, other suggestions. Uh, okay, first, real, real quick, are we doing football, men's and women's basketball? Is that it? And so, I, I, I'm, I'm and doing, softball. I threw in softball since he included Haley Cruz in the okay. in, in the question. Um, for football, I think the, the obvious one is Penny Sewell. We talked yes. about that frequently. Um, I also wrote down uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, and that's another one with a ton of attention. I guess if I was doing a third, potentially Tyler Shuck, if he ends up being the starting quarterback, is a no-brainer in terms of the the quarterback of a football program is always basically the the face of that team. And yeah, whether he likes it or not. Yeah, and so it, it, Tyler Shuck would be that guy um, if he does win that job, which I think we expect, but we also have to wait and see what happens in spring and fall. Any other football players that stood out for you, Matt? Um, defensively, I think Brady Breeze could become one of those guys. He's going to be a senior. Um, typically they lean towards guys that are senior or upperclassmen. Javon Holland would be another one that I could see becoming uh, a name, a face of the team, especially because Troy Dye's gone and they're going to look for a new defensive leader. And Holland's probably the most accomplished player that they have. Him or Thomas Graham. Um, coming back on the defensive side of the football. So I, I agree with you offensively. Penny Sewell, Tyler Shuck, uh, those would be probably the two offensive guys I would look at the most. And maybe a C.J. Burdell, too, is, in terms of he's yeah, been, running, been running for a 1,000 yards each of the last couple of seasons. He's already kind of a known commodity um, with Oregon fans. All right, um, men's basketball, and this one is one where you maybe have a better indication than I do, but at the top of my head, I'm thinking Will Richardson and Chris Duarte. If they're both back next year, would probably be the two most noble players, um, currently second and third in the team in scoring behind Pritchard, who will graduate. Yeah, Richardson would probably be the primary choice because he's the more familiar name. Duarte would be the bigger name because he's the better player, I, I think. Um, I We could maybe see a, a, some kind of a recruit show up and become the face of this program. A wild card, a couple wild cards out there. There's three of them. And Folly Dante, the center freshman, if he comes back for his sophomore season, and is healthy and has the year that he's supposed to have, he could be a big name in college basketball just because he's so talented and a different player. But then two other guys that are redshirting right now that I think could become big names at Oregon in 2020-21, Eugene Umari, a senior forward, he's redshirting, almost averaged a double-double at Rutgers, really good player. And then the other guy, actually, I'm not going to say this guy. I'm going to change my pick mid-go mid, mid here. C.J. Walker, he... Mm-hmm electrifying, really big-time athlete. He's got, you know, unique hair with, uh, you know, different look than most guys have. Um, just everything about him is kind of star power-ish potential. I think, I think C.J. Walker could become a guy that 
kind of explodes onto the scene. And he fits what Oregon has had with Kenny Wooten and Jordan Bell and Chris Boucher yep. over the last kind of decade. Super uber-athlete. Yeah, just hasn't had quite a chance to, to get there this year. I agree. The ceiling there is so high that if he's around for a couple of years, there's no question he's going to be a player to know. Uh, on the women's basketball side, obviously the obvious one is Satu Sabali. Yeah. Um, and she's going to have a professional decision to make here uh, in the next six weeks or so because the WNBA will be interested in taking her potentially as high as a top three or Two or, or three. Two or three pick, yeah. I mean, she's not going to be taken above Sabrina, but she's that kind of a talent. So uh, Satu's definitely the obvious one. Um Obviously, that whole freshman class is notable. Uh, you know, maybe one of those players takes a step. But my second player on my list here was Sedona Prince. I think um, very unique in terms of the fact that she's six foot seven. That'll be the tallest player Oregon has had in program history. I think it's a tie with a player from the '80s, and I'm blanking on the name. Um, but she 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 would be a notable player because she's a little different and also just super super skilled. And a player Oregon hasn't really had. I mean, she's not the same player as a Ruthie Hebert in terms of. Uh, obviously, Ruthie is extremely skilled around the basket, but Prince can stretch it out and shoot it to 15 to 20 feet, um, and, right. and it's also very skilled around the basket. Um, a Taylor Chavez or an Aaron Boley, probably other players to keep an eye on. I think Chavez is the one who's really come on um, in conference play. But there's going to be a number of women's basketball players t- to be aware of, but obviously none of them are going to carry the same cachet as what Sabrina's been in Oregon. Um, you just can't replicate that. Yeah. Satu is the, the number one, but I wouldn't be surprised if – Aaron Bowler or Taylor Chavez become a big name next season for Oregon women. Yeah, and then on softball, this is kind of hard to do, and I'm basing some of this on, you know, not that, we should mention, we haven't really talked about it on the podcast. Softball, is, this season is starting. They played nine games. They've won all nine. They look pretty impressive doing it. Um, my picks here are basically dependent upon what we've seen this season because they're both newcomers this year. But um, Brooke Yanez is a, is a pitcher. She's 4-0 right now, leads the team. Uh, in a lot of statistical categories, I think she was actually the national pitcher of the uh, of the week, I should say, last week um, in their opening weekend. She's been impressive. And then Tara McGowan, who was supposed to be a key part of last year's team, a transfer from Arizona State, a catcher. Uh, she's been tremendous to start this season, leads the team in basically all batting categories. Um, I think she's going to be a star. Um, I just don't know. If, it's hard with softball in terms of being marketable. I think Cruz has done a unique job because she's got such a social media influence. And she's a very, very good player, but... Part of what makes her a face of the program is that she's so adept on Twitter and Instagram in terms of uh, just kind of creating viral videos. I don't know if there's a player on the roster who would follow up with that. I guess maybe a, a Jazz Seavers because they do shoot videos together. Um, Seavers just isn't quite the same player quite yet, at least, as what Cruz has been for Oregon. Yeah, I I, I was going to say maybe Jazz Seavers. Um, Tara McGowan would, would, could be one from an on-field production standpoint. Yeah. Um, Maybe Rachel Sid, you know, first baseman, kind of plays a couple different positions for them. I think she was recently named Pac-12 Player of the Week. So Rachel Sid could be, from a production standpoint, someone who certainly is going to generate a ton of interest. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, Haley Cruz is is unique because she's done such a good job of creating a social media following based off of really just her life as a collegiate athlete and has turned that into a huge following that – She's kind of crossed that barrier of being really well known for just being an athlete to now being really well known for being a good athlete and other things, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, I just looked on Twitter. I didn't pull up Instagram, but she has 94,000 Twitter followers. Haley <laughs> Cruz does. And, and Sabrina Inescu, who is undoubtedly the more notable athlete, has 43,000. So, you know, in terms of the social media aspect, 
Cruz has done a tremendous job of marking herself, almost having 100,000 as a student athlete. Uh, I think that's got to be more than – this would be a deep dive for us to go through, but that might be more than any Oregon football player either. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's a huge number uh, in terms of her following, so that's impressive right there. So she's going to – there's not going to be a softball player that has that kind of a following, but maybe there will be a player um, that steps up and, and kind of becomes the face of the program. Second question from at Paradise 919400. What's the update with Luke Hill with Dante Williams leaving? Is he still committed? Or is he, or is he requesting a release? Um, we should mention Luke Hill did sign with Oregon in December. So for him to decommit, quote unquote, he would have to basically, like, like the question indicates, request a release from the University of Oregon. He is on contract to be part of the football program. Um, Oregon has since hired Rod Chance. Matt, have you heard anything in terms of Hill? Is he someone you expect to be with Oregon this summer? Well, I mean, there's certainly some rumors out there that are circulating that Luke Hill might be getting out of his letter of intent, and I don't think right now it's anything too serious. I mean, Dante Williams did recruit him, yes. Um, He did have a huge impact in him him signing, And, and Luke Hill did also remember he also had some kind of off the field incident that got him suspended for some part of the Polynesian Bowl activities. Yeah. Um, so maybe something popped up there where Oregon just says, "Hey, you know what? We're, we're going to go in a different direction." Um, I, I don't know. I, right now, there's a ton of rumors out there, and I feel awful even just bringing these up right now. Because yeah. um, it's such, such speculative stuff, and I, you and I hate going into speculative rumors of things of this nature. And so I, I think right now. Um, all I'll say is that, yeah, there's some stuff that's happened off the field. Oregon, though, is expecting him to show up and be on campus. All right, let's leave that one there. Third question from at Vonte0602. A lot of numbers yeah. these names. Oh, a ton of numbers. I mean, we've got a couple good ones in the second half here, too, uh, oh, in terms of just awesome. in terms of Twitter names. Third question from at Vonte0602. Reaction to both recent hires for Oregon football and how they might affect recruiting. I think this is referring to offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, and I think we've spoken about that in the podcast, Matt, but more more importantly, cornerbacks coach Rod Chance. Obviously, he has big shoes to fill with Dante Williams leaving. Yeah, and, and this is just going to go back to what we talked about earlier on the podcast last week, is that as long as you hire someone that's willing to put forth the effort to recruit on a daily basis and to do it with strong intentions and a hard commitment to that, I think at Oregon you're going to have good recruiters because the brand is so strong, the reputation is so strong, the facilities are so good, the uniforms are so awesome, you're winning, you know, as long as you win, that's the most important thing. Um, Oregon's kind of reached that point now where as long as you put forth the effort, and as long as Oregon wins, you're set up to be a really good recruiter. Like, yes, Dante Williams is going to sting because he had a lot of connections. He has a lot of, you know, he related to a lot of players really well. But a lot of coaches relate well to players. And what makes Dante Williams so good is that this is a guy that literally did not stop recruiting at all all year round. And if you can find someone that can take that same mindset and that same approach – and can be relatable to players, that person's going to be uber successful. Maybe not the number seven recruiter in the country, but it wouldn't surprise me next year if Oregon has a top ten recruiter on the staff because the brand at Oregon has reached that point. 
Yeah, I think so much of recruiting is A, how you connect with people, but also B, how much effort you put into making those connections. And obviously, someone like Dante Williams had developed great connections on the West Coast, especially in Southern California, not just there, all across the country. Um, but you're right in terms of a coach like Rod Chance, someone like Joe Moorhead, someone currently on staff can take their recruiting to another level um, just through effort, basically, and, and basically being available to make those connections, understanding the value in those relationships. Uh, recruiting is always evolving and changing, but you're right. I think at the end of the day, it still comes down to those two kind of key things, which is relationships and then effort. Um, and, and you're right. I think Oregon's got guys in place now that are obviously aware that that is a big part of this job. Mario Cristobal would not hire somebody without that understanding, knowing his, you know, obvious um, focus and priorities on recruiting. Uh, he's not going to go out there and, and hire somebody or bring somebody in who do it. he doesn't expect to be a grinder. Speaking of recruiting and grinding on the recruiting circles, the next question from at Nat Fod. Why would Cooper Patagna come to be a recruiting analyst when he's been a very successful successful director of recruiting at multiple schools? We should mention um, yesterday, yesterday being, I guess I should say Monday, Monday uh, there was a recent addition to the recruiting uh, staff. And Matt, you kind of broke the story here. What can you tell us about Cooper and what he might provide Oregon? Well, he, he posted on social media in early January that he was leaving the Washington program and was excited to see whatever would happen next. Now, why he left, we don't know. Um, maybe it simply was him and the new head coach at Washington, Jimmy Lake, just had different opinions of things, and they both felt like it was best to go in different directions. I, I don't know. Maybe something happened from a, a, a personal standpoint that he needed to, to, to move. I, we don't know the reasoning of why he left Washington. Now, what we do know is he's got a good track record of working with programs that have really good recruiting classes. In 2009, in the 2020 class this past season, he worked at Washington and the Huskies signed the uh, 16th best class in the country, the second best class in the Pac-12. The year before that, he worked at Washington and, or excuse me, the, the year before working at Washington, he worked one season at Michigan in 2018, worked on the 2019 recruiting class. And that group finished eighth in the country, tops in the Big Ten. Um, he also had time working at Alabama and working directly with Mario Cristobal and as being one of many other guys that worked directly with Mario Cristobal. But he did work with Cristobal when Alabama signed the number one recruiting class and Mario Cristobal was named the recruiter of the year by 24-7 Sports. That was for... I believe the 2015 recruiting class. So he has time at LSU as well when they signed a really good class. Um, regardless here, Oregon has, has brought in somebody. And this is what I like about Cristobal is he finds guys that have high levels of success, whether it's at the high level of being an assistant coach, an offense coordinator, a defensive coordinator, or going down to someone who is behind the scenes like uh, a Cooper Patagna here and Someone, and, and yes, he, he, he's not an uh, on-the-field coach, but everywhere he's gone, that school has had a really good recruiting class. And look, if wherever you go, you're attached to success, that means you in some way are doing a really good job because no one bounces between job to job to job and just continually falls upwards. Eventually that stops. And for Cooper, it hasn't. And so that's a really, to me, an opinion of, this guy is doing something and making an impact everywhere he goes, and it's recruiting. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. 
All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pray. Eric Scopel is with me as always, and we're answering your best questions that you have sent to us uh, for our Wednesday mailbag. And we're about halfway through, Eric. Let's let's keep going. All right, next question from Only Here for Sports. I know this is a bit off topic, but with Sabrina, but if Sabrina, I should say not with Sabrina, but if Sabrina got signed by Jordan Brand, would you buy and wear a pair of her shoes? Uh, Matt, I'm not a huge shoe person, and I think you are a lot more. Um, I, I, I probably, you know, I guess we should say if it's a, if it's in men's fit size, so yes, I'm not gonna buy a woman's shoe. I'm gonna buy a woman's shoe. I think that's hard for me. That's gonna be hard. I've got about 11 size 11 foot, and I don't know what that translates to in women's. Never tried to look into that, but uh, certainly not something I'd start now. But if I, I don't know, Matt, is that something you'd be interested in? I think personally, I'm, I'm not a huge shoe guy to begin with, so I, I don't know if I look at. That's nothing against Sabrina, but. Um, I don't know. I used saw- to be a really big shoe guy. I mean, I, I I still have quite a bit, and then I qualify as a shoe guy. Okay. But in in my own perspective, I don't because I have a lot of the, just the same shoe. Like my new, like my fade right now is the Nike Freeze. So I probably would not buy uh, her shoe because I just I like buying Nike Freeze that are out there. Now um, I have and still continue want to get into collecting shoes and maybe that would be a good spot to do it. I mean, I, I'm just going in blind here, but I don't think Jordan brand has uh, a female ambassador. Do they like, I'm not aware. I, I, I don't know of one. I mean, maybe they have like someone that's signed to Jordan brand, but maybe they're not like a signature shoe, but Sabrina would be the one to get one. And if she's the first ever, yeah, that'd be a collector's item. No doubt. Next question from at Fitzgibbons Band One. What are some top recruits Oregon is really pushing for? He doesn't specify b- basketball, football, but let's assume he's talking about football. football in the 2021 class. I want to run through three or four names you think uh, Oregon fans should be aware of right now. You know, I, I think they need to find the quarterback, and so let's just look at that position really quickly. Um, Caleb Williams is the five-star dual threat, the number one dual threat quarterback in the country, Washington, D.C. area, plays for Gonzaga Prep, uh, was out to Eugene for an unofficial visit for Saturday Night Live last August, so that's one guy to look at. Another quarterback that I would consider uh, tracking is, is Miller Moss. He's going to decide the next couple weeks, a four-star guy. And then Ty Thompson out of Mesquite High School in Gilbert, Arizona. Those are, those are three quarterbacks that I would, I would pay attention to. Um, offensively, uh, you want to look at receiver, and receiver would be one where there's a lot of guys here. Emeka Ekbuga, a, a five-star athlete who's now moves to receiver. He's the 10th best player in the country, the number one receiver there. Uh, Troy Franklin, uh, he was a guy here for spring football, or for Saturday Night Live, excuse me, last August. 15th best player in the country, the number two receiver. He's another five-star guy that Oregon's looking at. Dante Thornton, this, Dante Thornton's a, a six-foot-five receiver, top 50 overall recruit, eighth best receiver in the country. That's the first guy that um, Joe Moorhead went and saw when he got hired at Oregon. So that, that tells you a little bit there. Um, Kingsley, and I'm going to butcher this name, Kingsley Sua Matatia, uh, an offensive tackle, the top offensive tackle out west, high on Oregon, same high school as Noah Sewell, really close to the, to the Sewell family, looks up to Panay Sewell. That would be one guy offensively along the, the, the line there. Uh, a linebacker that you want to know about is going to be 
Um, Jonathan Flo, the younger brother of Justin Flo, a top top 100 recruit, four star linebacker, really into Oregon there. Um, and then I would also say a guy who's an athlete out of Washington, Julian Simon, a four star athlete, can play a whole bunch of different positions uh, at the at the collegiate level on defense. And then up front, you know, Oregon's in the top group for a couple five star defensive tackles, JT. Tuamolo uh, out of Washington. He's the number one defensive tackle in the country, the fourth best player nationally. And then Peyton Page, the number two defensive tackle, uh, and also the eighth best player in the country. He's from North Carolina. It's going to be difficult to get him away from Clemson, but in Alabama and LSU, but Oregon's in that, in his like top six. So those would be some guys that I would, I would really, you know, if you want to look at top targets that are high, you know, high level players, uh, those are them. Doesn't mean Oregon has an elite chance of getting those guys. Just those are kind of the, the best of the best that Oregon has offered and has interest from. Here, hearing you run through this, I'm sure listeners who haven't followed recruiting very closely would, would agree with this. It's interesting hearing that the successes in 2020, you know, the top two recruits they landed there were Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. The fact that there are really good recruits in 2021, both of which have connections to those recruits that Oregon probably has a lead for. Uh, you ran through Jonathan Flo, and, and, and I'm not even going to try the last name because you probably would do better than I do, but Kingsley S., um, same <laughs> high school as, as Noah. Uh, that that right there is, is why each individual recruitment can have a ripple effect in all of recruiting. And it doesn't necessarily mean in that single class, but you're seeing now the potential for some 2020 success and efforts there paying off going forward in 2021 with two really highly regarded top 100 recruits who – I'm not saying they wouldn't be Oregon leans or wouldn't end up at Oregon if not for those two players being there, but it certainly doesn't hurt having a brother and maybe a pseudo brother for Kingsley and Noah um, at, at Oregon. I think that really helps their chances, and, and that's why you go out and you get these top dogs. It can really pay off going forward. Final question from at Josh Harden underscore four. Given the inconsistent play, what other reasons do we have besides Altman's teams always make a run in March? to think that this team can make a deep tournament run? Uh, it is a good question because that is kind of what we're leaning on. It's at some level is that the history with Altman has been that they start picking things up right around now and you look up and suddenly they're playing into the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Maybe give me a couple other reasons, Matt, aside from history, but from this team that you look at and go, man, uh, th- th- this group is ready to be a Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final Four caliber. Right. I think, well, first and foremost, they have one of the best players in the country. That. That's a requirement. Right. Peyton Pritchard is one of the best players in the country. He's going to be up for National Player of the Year. He's going to be up. He's probably the, the go-away favorite right now for Pac-12 Player of the Year. So right there you have at the most position, the most important position, the point guard position, which runs everything offensively, defensively for Oregon. You have one of the best players in the country at that position. That's huge. I mean, he leads – the, the conference and assists at 5.8. He's second in the conference in scoring at 9.5. And Remy Martin leads the league in scoring at 9.6 points per game. So literally one-tenth of a point separates Pritchard from being the league, the league leader in points and assists per game. That's number one. Two, they've, they've improved defensively. They have two guys in, in the top five in the conference in steals. Chris Duarte is second in the conference. Peyton Pritchard is fifth. So you know you have some perimeter defense on the wing that's doing a really, really good job there. Um, another reason, three-point shooting. I look at Oregon, and you look at the guys that are, that are shooting the ball, and Oregon leads the conference in three-point per- shooting percentage. That's going to be huge. It's going to stretch the floor. But then you look in 
just the let's look at just maybe the the, the top ten. And Oregon has three guys in the league in three point shooting percentage. Will Richardson leads the league at forty nine point two percent. Anthony Mathis is third at forty two point four percent. And think about that. I mean, Mathis was shooting at such a high clip, and as overwhelmingly it seemed like he struggled shooting the ball. Yet he's still third in the conference in three point shooting. That's how good of a shooter he is. And then Pritchard is ninth in the conference at thirty nine point five percent. Um, this group is an elite team that can shoot the ball. And if, if they have nights where they did against Utah, where they have two or three guys knocking down three pointers, they are going to be extremely tough to beat because they literally can just trade threes for twos. And while you're scoring in the, in the paint, they're knocking down threes and gaining separation. Now that's a dangerous way to live by because if your shot all of a sudden doesn't start to fall, you have some issues, but I think to counter that, they've done a really good job. All their guards, Will Richardson, Peyton Pritchard, Chris Duarte, have all shown the ability to score in the paint and get to the paint to score. And now all of a sudden, um, Shakur Juson starting to produce a little bit offensively. Francis Coro had a, had a solid game for him against Utah on Sunday. Um, I, I think Oregon's offense is one of the best in the country. You look at Ken Palm's rankings and just look at where they are statistically from a national level, their offensive adjusted efficiency rating is ninth in the country. They are one of the best teams offensively out there, and they are going to be incredibly difficult to stop scoring the basketball. And I, I think this is going to be a year in which Oregon wins games because they get just enough defensively, and their offense is so good they're going to be hard to stick with. Now, real quick, before we wrap up the show, I want to, we need to address this, Eric, and this is totally flying by the seat of, of our pants here because we've not discussed this at all. Um, while we were recording this podcast, the NCAA sent out a release that says D1 transfer waiver working group to seek feedback on waiver expansion. Potential change could make student athletes eligible after first transfer, regardless of sport, immediately. This is huge news in the college landscape of athletics because guys have been transferring, women have been transferring for multiple reasons, but we've we've always said that let them, if, if coaches can just get up and move, let athletes have the ability to just get up and move if, not, if they're not in a good situation and be eligible to play right away. Now, there's some criteria that comes with this. They will become eligible for a first-time four-year transfer in all sports immediately if they qualify these four areas, receive a transfer release from their previous school. And previously, the NCAA announced that the transfer portal and that the school has three days to put, you know, put an athlete into the transfer portal and give him his release. So that's automatically done. The second one is leave their previous school academically eligible, meaning you can't be ineligible at Southeast Northwestern and transfer to Northeast Northwestern and be eligible to play right away. You have to be eligible. You have to maintain your academic progress at the new school. I like this. It forces the athlete to show up to, to his new school and still go, still go to school and still have success in his academics. And then most importantly, leave under no disciplinary suspension. So you can't be suspended, transfer, and become eligible somewhere else. I think this is a good policy, and this is a move in which – Yes, thank you. Why is it taking so long for this to happen? 
Yeah, we are flying by our seat of a pants here because I had not seen this until Matt started talking about it. But, uh, yeah, just initial reactions, it sounds like we're going to start having basically free agency um, yeah. in college sports, and I, I'm here for it. I think that's been something – you know, I don't want to say it's been needed, but I don't, it's clearly where it's been going. And they've, they've slowly but surely kind of taken steps to get here where it's easier and easier for a player to transfer. I mean, obviously you remember – there was a time where you almost never got an, a waiver to play immediately after transferring from one school to another. And now you see numerous occurrences of that every year for a variety of reasons. And now if there's a situation where the expectation is almost that they're going to be able to play right away, I think that changes things. And it's going to be really interesting to see the way that comes together. You know, what loopholes do coaches and programs find to take advantage of this? I'm not saying like in a malicious way, but they, there's always going to be these small, small, subtle things that you're able to figure out and go, hey, if we do it X, Y, and Z, I don't even know what they are because the legislation hasn't even been passed yet, but there are going to be fine ways that they're going to be able to find to kind of benefit themselves, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that impacts things and what the what the immediate, you know, I guess fallout will be to free agency basically in college sports because we're again we're very close to that right now with the portal. Immediate eligibility, I think, is, is something that's needed. I think it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. Imagine. Um, you know, last year maybe having a guy like, I know it would maybe be the perfect setup because he transferred mid-year, but like a Devin Williams or something like that, if he could have played last fall, how that might have changed an Oregon program. Um, or Oregon basketball with those two players that are redshirting this year, what would Oregon's team look like with Williams or Amamori um, or Sedona Prince for the women's side? I mean, there's all these opportunities. Uh, it would be very interesting uh, to see how that plays out, and, and I'm with you. I think I'm here for free agency. I'm excited to learn more about what this looks like. Um, and to see how it impacts kind of the landscape as a whole. But you have to be excited by at least the prospect of this. Now, one negative is it's going to open up the possibility for tampering. Yep. And, yes, tampering happens right now. Today, some some school is tampering with another school's athlete. So they're going to have to figure out some kind of a way to, to kind of police that. Is, is that something that they're going to be able to police? I don't know. But that's going to pop up. It's going to become a bigger issue probably down the road. Um, but nonetheless, I think the negatives from that would come from this do not outweigh the positives. It gives more power to the athlete. And quite honestly, if we're not going to pay the student athlete any money, we need to do everything we can to give them as much power as possible so that they kind of dictate uh, what's best for them and not the other way around, not the NCAA coming out and saying, well, even though you don't feel safe or even though you don't feel like you're getting the right Stick here at, at this school, uh, and it's been proven that you're not getting, you know, the right, you're not getting what you were told you were going to get when you showed up. Uh, we're still going to make you pay for that. Uh, get, getting rid of that ideologically is, is going to be great. Um, big news. It's going to, we're most definitely going to talk about this down the road. Uh, I immediately know I'm going to ask Dan Altman the first time we, we get to talk to him since this news has come out, which could be later today. Um, to be honest with you. So, uh, lots to, lots to watch with this, with this bit of news. So that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. For Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prem. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.